It is Thursday, January 11th, 2018, and this is the Washington State Indivisible Podcast. I'm your host, Stephen Cox. Hello. On this week's show, we talk first with State Senator Lisa Wellman about the mood among Democrats in the state capitol this week and what we can expect legislatively. And then we chat with Marcia Stedman. She is president of Healthcare for All Washington about the rallies they have planned in Olympia for January 16th to advocate on behalf of their proposed single-payer health care trust. All that, and we have our member profile. Senator Lisa Wellman represents the 41st District, which includes Mercer Island, as well as parts of Bellevue, Sammamish, Renton, and Issaquah. And I asked her on the show to talk about the legislative term that just began in Olympia, the first one since Democrats took control of both chambers. I asked her to give us an idea of the mood among Democrats in the Senate now that they have control of the state capitol. I think we're cautiously optimistic. One of the things that's, you know, it's when you only have a majority of one, um, it is somewhat shaky and it's easier to hold together when you are in the minority um, because your vote doesn't count for much, at, generally speaking, and, and uh, you're working against a pretty, pretty brick wall there. But um, we're cautiously optimistic. We're working together well, and I think that we've got a very uh, strong agenda that we're looking at. We, we would like to uh, under-promise and over-deliver, certainly, um, but we really want to create an agenda that reflects our values and, and sends a message about, you know, what, what Democrats believe in and, and how we want to govern. Well, you know, speaking of that and in terms of what people can expect, you know, when I let our listeners know that I would be speaking with you about this new session, uh, I got a lot of questions from progressives asking <laughs> about uh, a ton of things ranging from creating affordable housing to uh, even gerrymandering the state in favor of Democrats. Um, as you say, it is a very slender majority in the Senate. So how would you advise people to set their expectations for this 60-day session? Well, Yes, understand that while it, it is very short, it's, it is an exceptionally short session, especially after having gone through three special sessions at the last time where it seemed to go on forever, um, but it gave us a lot of time to work on a lot of different bills. Uh, this time, uh, we have three weeks and it's cut off, and so there's quite a bit of frantic activity going on right now, and at the end of, you know, really summarizing everything, we have some very significant things to do that really must be done almost before anything else can get done. Um, I very much hope that we're able to get the capital budget passed. Sure. Not only is it um, a significant for education, for the construction industry, so many jobs were demobilized, and uh, it, it, people are really uh, challenged getting all of these various projects you know, accomplished that are very important to many of the communities all around the state. Absolutely. So the capital budget is really uh, a top of the line in terms of having to get something done, as well as um, education. 
Well, I, I actually want to get right into all of that, um, and I'd kind of like to go through a few of these these top priorities and certainly some of the things that Governor Inslee mentioned in his State of the State address. And uh, I would actually like to start with education, if we may, because I know that that's very near and dear to your heart. Uh, you started as uh, a public school teacher, and uh, now in the Senate, you are the chair of the Early Learning and K-12 through Education Committee. And I would like to talk about McCleary in just a moment, but first, a bill that you spoke uh, Sponsored called Breakfast After the Bell just passed the House. Uh, this would provide needy children yes. with meals in the morning. Uh, do you have a sense of how that's going to do in the Senate? I think that this time it will do very well. I certainly think I have the full backing of my caucus uh, for that bill, and I hope that uh, many of the Republican legislators will support it as well. It, this is not the first time it's been run. It's been many sessions now where we've talked about this. And really, the biggest part of it is making sure that we can give kids nutrition after the bell rings. You know, many kids are are spending an hour on school buses till they get to school. And schools have just said, we would like to be able to have kids get that nourishment, but not take away from instructional time. Mm. Uh, And so it just allows schools to provide those that nourishing food during instruction time. It's pretty simple. But the, diff- the, the big thing about education is that we have to find almost $900 million. Yeah, that's the McCleary ruling. And I, I actually was going to ask that the court is now imposing, I believe, uh, $100,000 a day in fines on the legislature for failing to meet its self-imposed deadline to invest, as you say, uh, close to a billion dollars in the state's public schools. Um, some listeners have expressed concern that even Democrats have backpedaled on this issue in the past. And I wanted to ask, do you anticipate public schools getting funded during this session? One of the things that I can say, and I have said this to many uh, education organizations, uh, teacher organizations, et cetera, is that we are going to make significant progress in fixing the things or in updating the things that need to be updated in order to make the McCleary decision, I'll call that what we enacted, uh, 2242, in order to make that work for school districts. Uh, There are many parts of it that now that they had a chance to implement uh, the bill and implement the funding, et cetera, they're, they're really reporting back on what is and is not working. In fact, the first session that I had in my committee was all about the impacts of the bill and what has happened. So we got some very good feedback. And of course, Mm -hmm. all of the members of the committee have spent time during the interim talking to their school districts, their school boards, the teachers, organizations, et cetera, to get firsthand knowledge of, so this is like the post-implementation audit. So how is it working? Is it working or is it not? Now, so that's in addition to what the Supreme Court really talked about in terms of not pushing uh, teacher salary increases up out for a year. They said, no, you have to do it more immediately. But we also learned over the course of the interim that we have not adequate funding for special education for a number of other programs. And, and we don't really want anyone to wind up worse off than they were before um, in terms of their overall funding. Sure. So a lot of focus will be on um, tweaks here and there to make this uh, legislation work. You know, this was a listener question, and I, I thought it was actually a very interesting one. As a, as a practical matter, who does the 
the legislature pay the court fine too? Does it go into a fund? How does that work exactly? Well, it hadn't been, but through the last ruling, my understanding is that the that the Supreme Court said, "Yeah, no, you have to put it into a fund. You have to actually have to account for it." But that will all go towards. Um, it's just a question of putting it where you put it on the books. That will all go towards education. So one of the ways that Governor Inslee proposed paying for that nearly billion-dollar investment in public schools is through a carbon tax, uh, which he talked about in his State of the State address on Tuesday. Uh, He calls it a carbon pricing system. This would be for 2020, and it is expected to generate about $3.3 billion in revenue for the state. Uh, The carbon tax has been talked about here before, and there's predictably been very stiff opposition to this from uh, Senate and House Republicans, but now they're in the minority. Do you feel that now is the time for Democrats to push for a carbon tax? Well, we're certainly very, very um, aware of the effects of climate change, and we do feel that we have to be responsive to that. As I heard the governor speak, now in the budget that came out, he talked about using the money for education. However, when I heard him speak um, yesterday, I I guess it was just a day or two ago, um, he was not necessarily talking about using the money for education. And so I think that this is going to be an issue that is going to be worked. I expect that Senator Carlisle, who is in charge of the Energy, Environment, and Technology Committee, uh, will be working on something in this space. And so I will just say kind of keep looking at what's going to happen here. But I know that there's a great deal of energy being put towards um, making something happen to reflect our feelings about climate change and the need to really be responsive. And indeed, uh, Washington state has led the way in many regards, particularly as the Trump administration pulled out of the Paris Climate Accords. And so uh, I think a lot of people are very much hoping that that trend continues here. Um, You know, the governor also introduced a package of legislation aimed at improving voting access and turnout. Uh, The proposals include things like allowing new voters to sign up on Election Day and uh, allowing voters to be registered automatically. Um, As a lawmaker, are there particular things that you would like to see done to increase voter participation here in Washington? Absolutely. You know, one of the themes of of our efforts this year is is all about putting people first. And in in doing that, one of the things we're talking about is access to democracy. And so I think you're going to be seeing something very exciting happening with uh, Washington Voting Rights Act, automatic voter registration, same-day voter registration, and even voter pre-registration for youngsters. Mm -hmm. We want to get people in the habit of getting to the table, putting their voice, you know, making their voice heard. Uh, that's how democracy works better when everyone participates. So as you mentioned, uh, Governor Inslee says that, and you said as well, that uh, you'd like to see the capital spending bill passed right away. Um, this covers, among uh, many other things, infrastructure spending, um, water, and, uh, and and parts of education. Um, this is something that Senate Majority Leader Sharon Nelson says was basically held hostage by Republicans last year. Uh, are you optimistic about getting that spending bill passed now? Well, I, I think it's unconscionable if we don't get this done, first of all, because these are affecting communities across the state. This is not just good for Seattle at all. This is the capital budget is really important to many, many of our rural communities. Uh, additionally, uh, we estimate, you know, I, I, 
I sit on the Public Works Board, which is a whole separate entity, is not part of the legislature, um, but another responsibility that I have. Uh, and I, I can tell you our estimate was on many of these construction pro uh, programs where they had to demobilize because they didn't have the money, they weren't getting the money with a capital budget passed during session. They had to demobilize the jobs, and then they have to start them up again once the budget is passed. And that adds approximately $300,000 to each of these jobs, to wow. many of these jobs. Um, just, the, you know, taking it down and then putting it back to say nothing of the people that were hurt because um, they didn't have the work that they expected to get. Right. So I, I think that saying it was held hostage was, was the situation. That's what did happen. There was another bill that, based around the Hearst decision. I think you are familiar with that. And, and, and I would like um, to talk that, about that in actually just a moment. Um, yes, but please continue. Yeah, they... they well, that's what happened is that it was you have to pass the Hearst, you have to give us a Hearst decision bill and allow for exempt wells to be drilled around the state. Um, and if you don't do that, we're not going to come up with passing the capital budget. Now, the capital budget understands it has really two parts. There's voting for the bill, which is, um, I think we could have done that. But that wouldn't have paid for the bill because the bonding requires us to have uh, a certain percentage of, uh, of, of the 60 percent of uh, the Senate voting for it. And so we couldn't get the, the, the um, pay part of it, uh, the funding part of it. And therefore, we couldn't, you know, just enact the bill itself. It would have been meaningless. The Hearst decision um, is interesting in that. It really came about because in one particular area of the state, uh, we most of the people there are on wells. In drilling a well, uh, one person found out that their neighbor, or they were they were the guilty party, I guess. They drilled a well that they were supposed to be able to drill, and that resulted in their neighbor not having water that they that he particularly had previously. Um, and it, it became a court case. And the court said, well, wait a second, you're supposed to track how much water is being used, you're supposed to meter it. And you're supposed to actually be taking care of your watershed. And if you're not doing that, then um, we're not going to allow you to, to drill any more exempt wells, which are home, you know, homestead wells, sure. um, you can't drill anymore until you clear this up. So it sounded as though, wow, this is a major issue that affects everyone in the state. And, of course, that's not true. I was just out in the Yakima Valley watershed, and they have an amazingly wonderful, comprehensive, integrated program out there where they are doing the measuring, they are doing the monitoring, and they are able to drill wells out there because they know what where the water is and how they're impacting the water. And that's true for many, many parts of the state. So there are really a few parts of the state that have got to do their homework. They've got to make sure that they're metering and understanding how much water they're using and making sure that they're keeping their aquifers um, healthy and that streams are flowing and that fish can thrive, et cetera. Um, I'm actually pretty glad that Washington has uh, oversight on, the, on its water. That's going to be something that's going to be increasingly critical, you know, as we move forward, we certainly saw what happened in, has happened in California over right. a period of time. 
Um, I have dear friends down in the Ojai area, and that Thomas fire is, is terrifying when you think of the amount of land that was covered by that fire. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and people's lives were lost as well as homes. And we certainly had our share of wildfires in the region uh, last year as well. And unfortunately, the way that things are going uh, in terms of the climate, that is beginning to look more and more like the reality. And so, as you say, water is going to become a very, very uh, important issue. And, I, and, you know, as far as this relates to the capital budget, um, a lot of people claim that the push to overturn Hearst was a major impediment to uh, passing the capital budget. Do you see that as being something that can be overcome now? Well, I know that the parties are working on it and and, uh, spending many long nights trying to achieve something that um, will satisfy parties, will get us moving forward. Um, I think I heard a number of things, frankly, that were offered actually last session that I thought were ways to move forward um, which would actually be offered uh, to pay for um, counties and, and areas and watersheds to hire a hydrologist and to work over the next several years um, on their water plans while allowing for a small percentage of wells to go forward so that people could actually start to build and, and, and take advantage of the land that they had. Mm. Um, that was turned down. So I'm not sure of all the different issues. I'm hoping that both both the Hearst decision uh, bill, the water bill, whatever that turns out to be, as well as the capital budget would go, will just go forward quickly. Um, I don't know whether that will happen. It should happen. And in any event, I certainly hope that we can get the capital budget moving very quickly. Absolutely. So finally, I just want to ask you, um, in closing, now that Washington is a blue state uh, and is part of what uh, Washington Democratic uh, Party Chair Tina Podlodowski refers to as a big blue wall, along with California and Oregon, um, what does that mean in practical terms to you? Do you see ways to push back against the Trump and GOP agenda from Olympia? Actually, I do, and I've used hashtag blue wall uh, uh, quite a bit in, in some of my writings and, and postings. Um, you know, we're looking at responding to, for instance, the decision on net neutrality. Right. This is a small, you know, kind of doesn't seem like a huge thing, but I think in terms of our democracy, it's really critical. Well, you used to work in tech, so you know just how critical it is. Yes, and I'm hoping that what we will start doing is act in concert more with um, aligning ourselves with Oregon and California. I don't want to be anti-business, so I don't want to have to say you have to do this in the state of California, something else in Oregon, something else in Washington, et cetera. That's not good for business, and there's no reason why we have to be good, you know, have to do that. But so I think that we can align ourselves with one type of legislation, running similar legislation, if not the same legislation, in our three states, creating, you know, our blue wall and um, making it easier for business to do business with us, as well as standing up for the rights of our citizens. Absolutely. Oh, you know, speaking of your technology background, before we go, I would like to ask you a little bit about your uh, passion and your push to uh, create connectivity, high-speed connectivity throughout the state. Oh, thank you, because I am passionate about it, especially with regards to our schools and our kiddos across the state. You know, we have a number of schools that don't are not connected at all. 
and then a number of schools that have internet, but it's slow and it doesn't allow every child, for instance, to be online doing, you know, kind of searches and, and exploration uh, simultaneously. So I, I'm calling this digital parity where I want all of our children in every school across the state to be able to have that rich experience. There are no wrench jobs anymore, as they'll tell you at, at uh, Boeing. Um, every area of the economy really requires digital literacy, and more than that, just fluency. And I think that if we want our kids to participate in a 21st century economy, they have to have that rich experience from even preschool. And so we're working to get federal funds, which are available to us, making sure that we get those funds and can distribute them around the state and get all of our schools, uh, you know, avail uh, tied into the Internet and uh, working at maximum capacity. Well, this seems to be part and parcel with your passion for education generally. Absolutely. I think it's important to the economy of our state, to, you know, to businesses. They're asking for that workforce. And uh, we want all of our children to thrive within flourishing communities. Well, Senator Lisa Wellman, I, I want to thank you so much for joining us on the show. And uh, thank you for the work that you're doing in Olympia. A pleasure. Thanks so much for inviting me to talk. Marcia Stedman is the president of Healthcare for All Washington, and she joins us now to discuss the work her organization does and also to talk about a rally planned for January 16th at the Capitol Building in Olympia. Marcia Stedman, thank you so much for joining us. Well, you're welcome. Glad to be here. Thanks for having me. Of course. So uh, first, I want to talk about your organization and what its core mission is. Uh, the name is self-explanatory, Healthcare for All. Uh, and I want to talk uh, in detail about the legislation that you are advocating in just a moment. But first, tell us a little bit about how your group came about. Well, we actually came about um, several decades ago. There was a core group of mainly um, healthcare providers, doctors, physical therapists, nurses, who noticed um, in the 80s, late 80s, that when they began their practices, they noticed how difficult it was for people to pay for their health care at that time, even. This is, we're talking a long time ago. It's only gotten more difficult ever since. Yeah. But um, so they started as an educational group, um, and we still are an educational group. But uh, what they did was devise a, um, a bill in the legislature about uh, 20 years ago, and that was called the Health Security Trust Bill. And it was uh, enabling legislation that would set up a single-payer system in our state for the state residents of Washington State. So this is very much built, the group is built around this legislation. As you say, it's the Washington Health Security Trust. As, as I understand it, it was officially first released uh, as a bill in 2013. Is that correct? Well, that was the most recent um, iteration of the bill. It was in 2013. And so now it is in the form of two bills that are in Olympia. There is House Bill 1026 and Senate Bill 5701. A talk, if you will, a little bit about these bills and how they propose getting us closer to health care for all Washingtonians. Okay, well, I'll give you some highlights. Uh, first of all, all residents will be covered for defined benefits regardless of health or employment status. Now, residents would choose their health professionals. The, the plan would be privately delivered. Healthcare would be privately delivered, but publicly financed 
through the Washington Health Security Trust, the single agency that would collect premiums and employer assessments on all businesses in the state. Existing federal revenues and existing state revenues would come into that trust fund, as you will. And so this does make it a a single-payer system. Yes, because from that same fund would be paid the services, the services to the providers, the pharmaceutical companies, the medical device manufacturers, all the entities would receive their payment from the single funding source so that that's the single in the single payer. You you eliminate the for-profit health insurance industry from the basic medical benefits that are guaranteed by this bill and law, should it become law by the law. Got it. So the benefits are that health professionals and patients would make the medical decisions, not an insurance company. So just to clarify, this is not a government-run program, the trust. It's Well, the program is not government-run. It's just financed through an agency of the state government. Okay. The government doesn't own the hospitals. It doesn't own anything. It, the, all the health care is still privately delivered, just like it is set up now. Everybody stays in business like they are. There's an urgency right now, isn't there, uh, since the GOP tax bill that passed in December repeals the individual mandate for Obamacare, uh, which could send insurance premiums skyrocketing. Do you feel that there is a particular momentum for your bills right now? Oh, definitely. Um, Not only these, even before this tax law was passed, of course, there were the draconian measures being proposed by the Republican Congress people nationally where they were going to take away health care from all sorts of demographics in our country. Everybody was worried. And this has been a a really huge issue all year long. We've noticed a doubling of of interest in our organization. We've got a doubling of membership. Our donations are way up. People want us to do something about it, and we're poised to do that. You talk on your website about building a bipartisan consensus. Uh, I think some might ask, is that necessary now that Democrats control both chambers? But it is a very narrow uh, margin. And so is that still part of your approach to try to get some uh, maybe moderate Republicans on board with these bills? Oh, definitely. Yes, definitely. That is uh, what we're um, aiming for. That's one of our main goals uh, this uh, session is to And we have been actually, even before session, in conversations with moderate Republicans from east of the mountains, the ones in the rural areas where their hospitals are in danger. They have one hospital in their area. It's in danger of being closed down, and they need to do something for their people. Their people are hurting. In fact, the situation is so dire that that these Republican conservative legislators are willing to talk with us about (laughs) what we can do for them. So, I mean, that is a sea change. We've never had that happen before. Well, that's very interesting because you, as a group, define yourself as a, a bipartisan group, yes? Oh, yes. Um, we're, we've always been a nonpartisan organization and a nonprofit organization. So we are not talking to only one sector of the population and or one political party. We're not political at all. This is a non-political issue. This is a across the board issue. Everybody needs health care. Everybody, health care is a human right, basically, is what we believe. And more and more of our fellow citizens are coming to believe the very same thing. So we are on, definitely in the right place at the right time here in Washington State, because we do have a slight Democratic um, majority now in right. both houses of our state government. But the other thing is, 
what we're talking about with the Republican legislators is they're wanting actually they're wanting to know what the financial um, implications of this bill would be. They're wanting to know the finance what what the financial report analysis would be of our state. And what are you telling them? Well, that we're telling them that um, in the current bill, the WIST bill, we call it the WIST, <laughs> okay. um, is uh, a section that um, authorizes the um, Joint Select Committee on Healthcare Oversight to commission an actuarial study and devise a funding mechanism by um, November of this year to uh, determine how the finances would work out. Now, this is something that um, we're, is very timely, and we really actually are working toward possibly getting a bill this session that will um, mandate a study, a financial analysis by the legislature this year so that it can be ready for the next um, session in 2019. You talked about this a little bit earlier, but if, if you could just go into a little bit more detail about how this trust gets funded. Okay, well, there are four funding sources. There's the premiums that each adult would pay in the state between the ages of 18 and 65. And would that be mandated? If, yes. Well, it would be um, necessary if they wanted to receive care payment. If they wanted to have their health care bills paid through the trust, they would have to enroll in the trust and pay the premium. So that um, the actual enforcement mechanism is not known at this time. Okay. But um, it would... Everybody would be covered because they would be residents of the state, but they would still have to pay premiums, most likely, because health care isn't free. So we have to pay the providers. What sorts of premiums would we be talking about? Do we have an idea? Well, we don't have a, a real clear idea. We have um, a similar, a, such a study was done in 10 years ago. And at that time, they came up with figures of about $150 per adult for a premium per month. Per month, okay. um, but those those are old figures, and that I've just I'm giving you a ballpark figure. This is nothing we can. This is nothing set in stone. I'm not going to hold you to it. It's going to be, and I'll promise it. <laughs> so, but people always ask this, and so we do have this older study that uh, was done that we can pull out, and we could try to extrapolate. But that's not really accurate to even extrapolate because of the high cost, the, the increased uh, cost of healthcare overall. So part of the way that the trust is funded is through uh, premiums, and uh, you mentioned there are other ways. Yes, another way would be there would be a business assessment, on a, a payroll assessment on all businesses in the state. They, this would be mandatory. It would be another uh, like a cost of doing business. But something to keep in mind is that when these businesses are paying their payroll assessment, they no longer have to provide health care benefits for their employees because their employees will be covered automatically because they're residents of the state. And one would hope for employers that that would be equal, or actually ideally, you'd hope that it would be less, right? Ideally, it would be less, and there's reason to believe that it would be less, because you would eliminate the 20% of the cost of health care that goes to the paper shuffling in the for-profit insurance industry and the claims denial in the off- doctor's offices and, and just all the back and forth. Okay, so that's the payroll assessment, and you mentioned there are two other uh, funding sources. Mm-hmm. Yes, there would be the existing state money revenue that goes for health care that the state pays for. For example, for uh, for the Medicaid population, that's federal dollars that come to the state. Um, the responsibility for the uh, public employees, 
that work for the state, um, uh, the prison population, and those people get coverage through the state. So there are various state obligations that they that their um, funds would go into the trust as well. And then through a process of obtaining waivers from the federal government, which is another little lengthy process, um, another section of this, um, the federal dollars that are currently coming to recipients of Medicare in the state would go into the trust as well. Okay. So there are, there are a number of moving parts, but it doesn't sound like you would have to completely right. reinvent the wheel here. No, no. In fact, uh, one of the good things about um, the Affordable Care Act that is still in place is the ability for states to innovate and find different systems that will work at least as better and at less has no more cost to the federal government than the Affordable Care Act. Well, so tell us about the day of action that you have planned. This is going to be on January 16th at the Capitol in Olympia, uh, and you have a full day starting at 8 a.m., right? Well, yes, we do. We're um, in the process now of lining up um, a legislator appointments. We don't have a schedule quite yet, um, but the rally itself the, will p- take part in the central part of the day from 1 o'clock until 2.30 p.m. on the Capitol steps in Olympia. So we will have um, speakers there, and we will have um, ask for a huge turnout of all the single-payer supporters throughout the state. We're alerting all of our allies and um, the various um, supporters that we've gathered information on over the years, uh, the contact information, and also the, there's a quite a large um, contingent of like-minded individuals and groups similar to ours. Not exactly the same, but that support our work. And then we're letting all their members know to sh- turn up and show their support for uh, single-payer health care and the Washington Health and Security Trust. So from 2.30 until 4, you're going to be lobbying members of the legislature. Talk about that process. Uh, you will be meeting then one-on-one with these legislators? Yes, we're setting up appointments in their offices um, in the Capitol. And since it's during the session, they'll be there. And um, our supporters uh, of those in those um, will meet with their own legislators in their legislative district in the office of the uh, of their legislator. For those of us who aren't familiar, tell us a little bit about how the lobbying process works. Oh, okay. Well, we meet with the legislators, and then and we tell usually what this involves is telling why what we're concerned about, what our concern is. Um, usually involves personal stories about around problems with access to health care that we have experienced ourselves, family members, friends, and um, are urging that the legislator support, actively support, the Washington Health Security Trust as a solution to these problems. Have you done events like this at the Capitol in years past? Uh, No, we haven't. This would be our first uh, big rally and lobby day. But our members have actually participated in other um, lobby days for other organizations. And we do participate in the lobby days that uh, our allies um, conduct um, and have done that in the past. Um, allies like um, Fuse, Washington, um, sure. National Organization of Women. Um, so. Well, your intention with all of this, of course, is to, as you say, sway lawmakers to pass a bill that uh, will uh, pave the way for this trust. Are you feeling optimistic uh, at this point? We are. We are feeling very optimistic that we will at least get a hearing in the health care committees, in the, both in the um, Senate and in the House chamber, 
Uh, that is actually our main goal. This session is to get hearings, public hearings in the committees so that we can bring our supporters down on another occasion when the hearings are scheduled and have them test, pu testify publicly about the benefits all, all residents would receive, but, but the testifiers in particular have um, compelling stories to tell to the committee so that they will convince them, you know, of course, part of the lobbying too is to testify in front of the committee that of the benefits of this bill and that we are really counting on them to stand up for the people. And then ideally it would come up for a vote. Then what would happen next is the uh, the committee would decide, would take a vote and decide whether to pass it along for further consideration. And it goes to the rules committee after that. When it comes out of the healthcare committee, it goes to rules, goes to ways and means, and then it makes its way to the floor of the Senate or House. And so it's a bit of a process. Sure. Yeah. <laughs> well, thank you for talking uh, all that, that whole process through because it is not common knowledge and you have a, a, a really solid grasp on it. So thank you for that. Um, if people would like to join your rally uh, in Olympia, where can they learn more? They can go to our website. Uh, it's www.healthcareforallwa.org. We have a take action page there and that should be posted soon. All right. Terrific. I'll make sure to post that on both the website and on the SoundCloud page. Uh, Marcia Stedman, thank you so much for joining us on the show. Oh, you're so welcome. Thanks for asking me. And I hope to see many of your listeners down in Olympia. And after Marcia and I wrapped our interview, a little late breaking news, it was decided on Wednesday that the Senate Health Care Committee will hold a public hearing on the Senate version SB 5701 of the Washington Health Security Trust Bill on the same day as the rally and lobby day scheduled on the 16th. So congratulations to all and uh, all the more reason to head down to Olympia. And now it is time for this week's member profile. Like many people after the 2016 election, um, I attended so many meetings to see where I could become involved. And at the same time, my Facebook feed was exploding with alarming articles from really dubious news sources. So um, I joined Indivisible East Side to help with the Facebook moderating team uh, to help them kind of elevate the quality of news posts because um, it really was a fire hose of information back in January, February, March, um, to try to help people figure out what actions that they could take because people were feeling really helpful, helpless, and so was I. So, um, And things moved really quickly, so within a few weeks I was on the steering committee and I was responsible for publishing actions that the members could take. I'm really proud of um, some of the gatherings we hosted to write postcards to get out the vote in Virginia, Alabama, and then also here in the 45th LD. And beyond the impact on those elections, I think the personal connections we made, um, they're resulting in greater member involvement. And I think that's going to be important going into 2018. Um, Indivisible Eastside is going to be working with Seattle Women Marching Forward and Seattle Indivisible on a massive voter registration drive on January 21st. And it's going to kick off a year of really important electoral work that will be so important to the future of our country. I'm Louise Pathé, and that's why I'm part of Indivisible. If you would like to be on the member profile, drop us an email at indivisiblepodcast at gmail.com. 
And that's going to do it for this week's show. As always, for more information about the show, do head over to indivisiblepodcast.org and uh, subscribe while you're there. It's a nice thing to do. And please, as always, keep the correspondences coming. The email address is indivisiblepodcast at gmail.com and the Twitter handle is indivisiblepod. Oh, and hey, we are looking for a social media person to help us out here on the show. If you or someone you know fits the bill, uh, you know what to do. Drop us an email. The Washington State Indivisible Podcast is a production of Get Creative, Inc. The executive producer is Aaron Albanese. Thank you again to my guests, Senator Lisa Wellman and Marcia Stedman. Very special thanks to Marcy Maxwell for her help this week. And as always, thanks to you for listening, and we'll talk to you next week. Bye.